Most kids don't see black or white. They don't discriminate or judge. They just see people as people. Although this practice is now illegal, today's case will centre around a time when black and white people couldn't even live in the same part of town, where people of colour didn't receive the same education, career choices or adequate legal representation, meaning that they were sometimes imprisoned and executed for crimes they did not commit. Let's uncover how racism killed George Stinney. Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of Uncover True Crime Podcast and the first episode in our Racism Killed series. This week we will be uncovering cases where racism killed a person of colour and their case either hasn't been solved or the victim didn't receive justice. I'm going to be uploading a new episode each day this week from Monday through to Friday where we examine these types of cases. As always you can follow the podcast on Twitter at uncover underscore pod and on Instagram at Uncover True Crime Pod. You can listen to this week's series on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast streaming apps, as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. To introduce this series, I could rattle off statistics about racial violence, how often unarmed black people are shot compared to their white counterparts, and how people of colour are disproportionately represented in prison. This is exactly what I was going to do until I educated myself on racial issues and found so many stories where people have been discriminated against purely due to the colour of their skin, and I want to share their stories. So this week, before I start talking about the cases, I'm going to tell you about these stories. Today, I'm going to talk about Dwayne Buck. He was convicted of murdering his ex-girlfriend Deborah Garner and her friend Kenneth Butler. Dwayne confessed to the murder and pleaded guilty to all charges in 1997 and the DA's office sought the death penalty in his case. In order for a jury to impose a death penalty, the prosecution has to prove the defendant is likely to, quote, carry out future acts of violence, unquote. At the sentencing hearing, Dwayne's own lawyer called Dr Walter Quinjano to the stand who testified that Dwayne was more likely to act violent in the future, not because of his past crimes, but because he was black. Dwayne had previously spent time in prison for domestic violence for assaulting ex-girlfriends, but was well-behaved in prison, as he was not violent to those he was not in a romantic relationship with. While I am in no way condoning his behaviour, the general consensus among psychologists who testified was that he was unlikely to commit more violent crimes if sentenced to life in prison, which was the only other option available to the jury. While Dr. Kinjano agreed Dwayne would be low risk of violence in prison, he did include in his report that being black did increase the risk of him engaging in violent behaviour. As a result of Dr. Quinjano's report, the jury deemed Dwayne as more likely to commit acts of violence and he was sentenced to death. He appealed to this but was unsuccessful, even in 2004 when the Attorney General found Dr. Quinjano had testified at six other sentencing hearings that race was a risk factor when assessing if someone would commit a violent crime. But, after yet another appeal, the Supreme Court agreed that, quote, the penalty phase of this trial was indefensible, unquote, and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Whatever you feel about the death penalty or about Dwayne Buck, no one should be sentenced to death purely because they're black. But that's what we will be discussing today as we uncover how racism killed George Stinney. 
George Stinney was born on the 21st of October 1929 in Alcoolu, South Carolina. He was the second oldest of five kids and in 1944 when this case took place, his half-brother Johnny was 17, his brother Charles was 12, his sister Catherine was 10 and his youngest sister Amy was 6. Their father, like many others in the small town, worked in the Alderman Lumber Company, who was also their landlord. In 1944, segregation was in effect in many parts of America, including Alcoolu, meaning black people lived in a separate part of town to white people and did not get the same education or employment opportunities as white people, and were also not allowed to vote. George was said to be a smart, good kid in spite of all the challenges he and his family faced on a daily basis, although no one could have predicted that George would be arrested and charged with the murder of two young girls when he was just 14 years old. On the 24th of March 1944, Betty June Biniker, aged 11, and Mary Emma Thames, aged 7, went looking for May pop flowers and walked to the other side of the train tracks that separated where white and black people lived. The two white girls approached George and Amy to ask if they knew where they could find the flowers, and when they said no, the two girls went on their way. While the conversation was brief, Amy remembers it vividly, saying, quote, The only white kids that came to our area was those kids. We had our own black school and church. We didn't fool around with white people, unquote. George and Amy returned home and according to their brother Charles, it was a perfectly normal afternoon and he didn't notice anything unusual about George or Amy's demeanour. They did their homework and would accompany their father to a party at a neighbour's house later that evening. It was there that they found out Betty and Mary hadn't returned home. George's father, George Sr., joined the search party, but when the girls were found the next day, sadly, they had been murdered. The autopsy showed that the two girls had been killed the day they went missing, and while the murder weapon was never found, the type of weapon used has been debated over the years, although it is now thought to be an instrument similar to a hammer. The girls have been beaten severely at another location and subsequently moved to the woods where they were found. It was assumed that the murders were sexually motivated, but neither girl had been sexually assaulted. Upon finding out that George had admitted to seeing the girls that day, he was suspect number one along with his stepbrother Johnny. When police asked around the neighbourhood to find out who could have done this, one man immediately said George's name, as some claimed that George Stinney was a bully. Police arrived at the Stinney home and apparently heard the two boys talking about the murders. Although I don't believe they were saying that they committed the murders, I just think they were discussing that the murders had happened in that area. Although this was enough for police to arrest both Johnny and George, but Johnny would be released a short time later. George apparently confessed to the murders, although there is no record as to what George said in this so-called confession. According to the police working the case at the time, he killed the girls because he wanted to rape Betty, and they were convinced this boy, who stood at 5 foot 1 inches tall and weighed 90 pounds, was capable of beating two girls to death and moving both of their bodies without being seen. George and Amy's account of that day never wavered and George confided in his cellmate Johnny Hunter that police had forced him to confess. Amy said this about her brother's confession, quote, they made him confess. They never found the statement. Why would my brother confess to something he didn't do? Unquote. They also ignored the fact that he had an alibi and he was soon charged and soon trial for the murders. The jury selection? 
trial, verdict and sentencing all happened in one day, with the trial itself only lasting three hours. The defence never called any witnesses, cross-examined any of the prosecution's witnesses or put any effort into defending George Sinney at all. The all-white jury took less than 10 minutes to decide that George was guilty of murder and he was sentenced to death. The Sinneys tried to get his sentence commuted to life in prison so they would have a chance to appeal, but they were unsuccessful. Amy said, quote, My mother cried and prayed. We wanted the truth to come out. But sometimes when you don't have the means and the money, you accept things for what they are. The National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People tried to stop it, but it was no use. In those days, when you were white, you were right, and when you were black, you were wrong. Olin Johnson, who was the governor of Carolina at the time, said, quote, It might be interesting for you to know that Sinney killed the smaller girl to rape the larger one. Then he killed the larger girl and raped her dead body. Twenty minutes later, he returned and attempted to rape her again, but her body was too cold. All of this he admitted himself. The day George was arrested, the mill that George Sinney Sr. worked at fired him and evicted the family from their home. Fearing the people in the town would lynch them, they fled to Sumter County to live with his parents. Amy said, quote, I never went back there. I cursed that place. It was a destruction of my family and the killing of my brother. Unquote. His parents only got to see him once after he was arrested and he was executed on the 16th of June 1944, just 83 days after the murders took place. At 14 years old, he was the youngest person to be executed in America in the 20th century. Photos of a terrified George are available online and they are honestly heartbreaking. I have decided to include include them in the YouTube video, as it is important to remember he was only a child when he was executed. He was so small that they didn't have a mask small enough to fit his face, and while he was being electrocuted, the mask fell off, exposing his face to the gallery of people watching. Just to be clear, the photo that I'm going to post in the YouTube video isn't a photo of him during the electrocution, it's a picture of someone fitting the mask onto his face. The Stinney family fought hard for George to be exonerated, but not for a number of years after his execution. This was out of fear, a fear that is totally understandable and given the violence and injustice black people have faced between 1944 and now, a fear that is completely justified. Charles Stinney said, quote, I wish I could have come forward much sooner. However, George's conviction and execution were something my family believed could happen to any of us in the family. Therefore, we made a decision for the safety of the family to leave it be. I am now 78 years old and live in New York. I am asking for this matter to be reopened and investigated and for the state of South Carolina to seek justice, give mercy and do what is right in God's eyes." Unquote. They wrote to several media outlets and talk shows, including the Oprah Winfrey show, but with no luck. It wasn't until George Frierson, who worked as a historian in his hometown of Akulu, started researching the case and felt strongly that George Stinney was innocent and was not afforded the rights that white people would have had. Lawyers Steve McKenzie and Matt Burgess represented the Stinney family in their quest to exonerate George and filed a motion to overturn his conviction in 2013.
2019. Matt Burgess commented on George's so-called confession, saying, quote, The confession changed to fit the elements. The murder weapon changed. It was a piece of iron, then a spike, then a railroad spike. It changed in a manner beneficial to law enforcement. In 1944, a 14-year-old black kid interrogated by white officers, they probably put a lot of scenarios to him. I'm guessing he said, yes sir, a lot. Steve McKenzie posted a reply to an article The Guardian wrote about the case and said, I would like readers to understand my rationale when attempting to right a 70-year-old wrong. First, just because it happened 70 years ago doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I've had countless people tell me to let sleeping dogs lie. My response? If your sibling was given the death penalty after a two-hour trial, what would you do? That response usually is enough for people to say, you're right. I have had other people who have said, why did the family wait so long to request a hearing? My response to that question? In South Carolina, the public schools were not integrated until 1969. Black Americans were not assured the right to vote until after the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. George Stinney's siblings moved to New York and New Jersey as soon as they were adults. They simply did not trust the state of South Carolina to ever give their brother a fair trial, whether it was 1944, 1964, 1984 or 2004. It would take a white lawyer to grow up in South Carolina to convince the family to trust the system and South Carolina. I told them that South Carolina had changed for the better, that not all of the racial past was gone, but until someone takes a stand and looks at the past directly in the eye, South Carolina could not move forward and neither could they. George Stinney was the youngest person executed in the US in the 20th century. I am no racial crusader. I took this case on because I could see that a two-hour death penalty trial was not fair. It offended everything that I believed in the legal system that I had sworn to uphold. I could not believe that the youngest person executed in the US in the 20th century was executed from my home state and my county. That he was not allowed to speak to anyone in his family community or racial background before the trial. He was given a state-appointed white attorney who never put the state's case to the test. He was the only black person in the courthouse during his trial. There was no appeal. The fundamental unfairness just goes on and on. Regardless of the guilt or innocent, I believe he is innocent. The scant evidence is a whole different story. I believe no one can argue that his trial wasn't a miscarriage of justice. South Carolina has the opportunity to correct that injustice. Whether the case is 70 years old or 140 years old, shouldn't we try? Unquote. The Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project also got involved and said, quote, There is compelling evidence that George Stinney was innocent of the crime for which he was executed in 1944. The prosecutor relied almost exclusively on one piece of evidence to obtain a conviction in this capital case, an unrecorded, unsigned confession by a 14-year-old child who was deprived of counsel and legal guidance, and whose defence lawyer shockingly failed to call exculpatory witnesses or to preserve his right for appeal. Matt Burgess and Steve McKenzie filed a writ of coram nobis, which is a rare legal order which allows the court to 
overturn a previous judgment if there was a fundamental error that would have impacted the verdict. This is not the same thing as exoneration as there is no definitive evidence showing that George didn't kill the girls, although there is an alternative theory which we will discuss a bit later. Judge Carmel Mullen granted the application saying, quote, From time to time we are called to look back and examine our still recent history and correct the injustice where possible. I can think of no greater injustice than a violation of one's constitutional rights, which has been proven to me in this case by a preponderance of the evidence standard. No one can justify a 14-year-old child charged, tried and convicted and executed in some 80 days. She condemned the so-called confession, saying it was, quote, highly likely, unquote, that it was coerced. The fact that one of the three people who found the body was allowed to sit on the coroner's inquest. The fact that George did not receive adequate representation, that the trial only lasted two hours, and rounded off by saying, quote, in essence, not much was done for this child when his life lay in the balance. Given the particularised circumstances of Sinney's case, I find by a preponderance of evidence standard that a violation of the defendant's procedural due process rights tainted his prosecution. Not everyone believes that George is innocent though. People have claimed George was a bully and one woman told a local newspaper that George said to her, quote, If you don't get away from here and you ever come back, I will kill you, unquote. Betty's niece, Frankie Bailey Deitches, said, quote, It seems like a poor little black boy was railroaded by white people, and that's not how it was. It's always been one-sided. They're trying to make it about race, and it wasn't. It's not that we believe hearsay that we grew up with all these years. We've done our research. We've talked to people who were actually there. People who read these articles in the newspaper don't know the whole truth. I'm 100% convinced he did it. The stories we hear are that he was a shy, bashful boy, but he was a bully and he was mean. Unquote. When asked about the appeal to overturn his conviction, she said, quote, Why now? What about the 1960s, when the civil rights movement was starting? What about the 1970s or 80s? One was a school teacher. It's not as though they weren't educated. I'm a believer in the death penalty if you're 100% sure and I believe he did it. Unquote. She went on to say that George had plenty of time to recant his confession before he was executed. And to that, I would like to make three points. One, he did recant his confession to his cellmate, Johnny Hunter. Two, it's possible he recanted more times than we know about, but back in 1944, who would have taken a black child claiming he was innocent seriously? And three, 83 days isn't long enough to prove your innocence when a whole town of people believe you're guilty. Betty's sister Ruth said, quote, Even the black people knew he killed the children. There was never any doubt about who killed them. We had white people that worked in the house, and Daddy worked with black people in the mill, and they all knew he killed them. There was never any doubt about it. Unquote. Just because some other black people in the town thought he did it, doesn't actually mean he did it. Were there any black people on the jury? No, because they weren't even allowed to vote at the time, let alone get a decent defence if they were accused of committing a crime. Also, it's highly likely that many of the people she was referring to were too scared to say that he was innocent, out of fear of what would happen to them. I'm inclined to believe that George was innocent of killing Betty and Mary, 
However, whatever side of the argument you sit on, I, I think we can all agree he wouldn't have been executed if he was white. He might not have even been found guilty. His trial would have lasted more than a day. He would have had more competent counsel and he would have had the right to appeal. And the state certainly wouldn't have executed a 14-year-old white boy. He didn't get any of the rights he should have had purely because of the colour of his skin. Now I'm going to talk about another potential suspect in the case, however I want to make it clear that this is all speculation. His name was James Burke Jr and his father, James Burke Sr, was the operations manager at the mill where George Stinney Sr worked. Many people knew that the Burks were womanizers and were to be avoided at all costs and many people speculated in the years after George's execution that James Burke Jr was actually the one who killed the girls. George Stinney's mother apparently worked for the Burks for some time until James Burke Sr made a pass at her which she rejected. The land where the girl's body was found on was owned by the Burks and one of the Burks was the foreman of the jury that found George guilty and two of the people who found the girls' bodies were also on that same jury. While none of this proves that James Burke murdered the girls, an account given by his son Wayne is more damning. He claims that the day Betty and Mary were murdered, the two girls passed the Green Hill Baptist Church where James Burke Jr was unloading lumber from the back of his truck. He offered the girls a ride which they accepted and they got into his truck. It is important to note that Wayne was very young when this happened and he heard this account from his grandmother. He also denies ever saying this, but if this is true it means that George and Amy were not the last people to see the girls. James was. He was in his 20s at the time of the murder and would have been more physically capable of beating them than George would have. He also would have been able to move their bodies easier than George and given how powerful and wealthy his family were, not to mention the fact that one of his relatives was on the jury, it would mean that he would have gotten away with it very easily. Again, this is all speculation and James Burke Jr died in 1947 from kidney disease. Sadly, I doubt that we will ever know for sure who actually killed the two girls. Benny Bittaker's mother went on to face more tragedy in her life and would lose two more of her children. One son to caught death and another one of her sons died in the Korean War. Amy Stiney has let go of her anger and says she doesn't have any hate, quote, for any man, even the ones who killed my brother. I feel sorry for the families that lost those little ones. They lost their children and I lost my brother. That hurts. But for people to sit down and form a judgement in the way they did, to electrocute him, they burned him. It was a horrible death for a child." Unquote. Betty's niece Carol agreed and said, quote, I feel bad for his family. All of them. They had to live with it, same as we have. My mother, Vermeil, didn't think he should have been electrocuted. She thought because of his age that he shouldn't. At this point, after years of this, if the judge rules it wasn't fair, then I'm happy with that. I hope the family gets some peace from it." Unquote. George never stood a chance after he was arrested. He was discriminated against and wrongly convicted of a crime he probably didn't commit purely because he was black. This miscarriage of justice meant that three children died and even more than 70 years later, none of them will ever receive justice and the real killer 
likely went free. Remember, there will be no justice, there will be no peace, and no lives matter until black lives matter. All photos and sources related to today's case can be found on our website at www.uncoveredtruecrimepodcast.co.uk. That's everything I have for you today. Thank you for listening to the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.